I don't know. I think a certain kind of radical compassion is the only thing that's going to like ultimately start to mend us. It feels like things get so splintered and so argumentative that I I sort of start to look at this lens of that level of compassion where you can say it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. And I mean that literally. I'm going to see the human being in you. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 93rd episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and you can find all of this at Pine Copper Lime. We also have a Patreon page where supporters can join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and that helps keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like stickers, prints, and mugs, as well as access to bonus content, Shop Talk, with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests from materials, processes, business advice, and just general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, but are on the fence about it, check out the link in the show notes and hear Tim's chat with today's guest for completely free, no sign up, no sign in required. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you've been following them along on Instagram, and we really do recommend that you do, you've no doubt seen their newest initiative in the print world, Speedball's Print Posse. Working with artists like Florence Cadez, they have created a brand new line of custom printing inks and additives to push your practice even further. So head on over to Speedball's Print Posse shop at speedballart.com and find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Caledonia Curry, an interdisciplinary artist and printmaker based in New York, who you might know a little bit better by her other name, Swoon. I spoke to Callie a couple weeks ago while she was in the middle of preparing for her new exhibition, Swoon, Wholeness in Mind, which is open now and on exhibition through the 11th of July at the Turner Carroll Gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In this episode, we talk about giving kids encouragement to their endeavors, how there is so much more to printmaking than additioning, using that detailed process to printmaking to free up your practice, community projects, and trauma healing through art making. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to find radical compassion with Caledonia Curry. Hi, Callie. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. I'm great. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. I'm so pleased that we're finally getting to sit down and and have a chat. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So just to get started, I always invite my guests to introduce themselves just briefly by answering the questions, who you are, where you are, and how you describe what it is that you do. 
Hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So just small questions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So my name is Caledonia Curry and I'm in Brooklyn right now. And I am an interdisciplinary artist. I've never actually used that term before, (laughs) but uh, I was like, shit, how do I say my practice is pretty widespread? You know, it definitely has some big keystones, Mm -hmm. but I, but I, I do a lot of different kinds of things. And so that can, um, that can be a little tricky to describe sometimes. So how about we'll just We'll just call it interdisciplinary for now. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. Well, we'll definitely get into the different branches of it for sure in this hour Mm -hmm. or so. As I was doing some research for this episode, I noticed a lot of the time when people talk about your work – it seems to start in 1999 in the Bowery, you know, with these Mm -hmm. wheeze paste ups that um, Mm -hmm. sort of first drew the attention of the art world writ large. And, you know, a lot of the imagery in that and the aesthetic really sort of travels through to, to what you do today in a lot of ways. So you mm-hmm. already at that young age had this really developed distinctive aesthetic, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I know that art practices tend not to kind of fall from on high, fully formed. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. So if you don't mind, I'd like to maybe go back a little further and mm-hmm. if you could tell a bit of the story of how you came to find that voice in that time between, you know, kind of childhood or even in childhood and then till coming to New York. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, um, like many artists, I was an artist since I was a kid, but I did have a kind of a big defining moment or a couple of moments where I got involved in art classes that just helped me like tremendously they were like these phase change moments and the first one was like with um kind of a bob ross style like retirees Mm. painting class and Mm -hmm. everybody was 80 and i was 10 and it was like very (laughs) adorable and it was this sort of magical thing where they gave me this toolbox that i just like took off with and it's like such a that moment for me is is such a good lesson in what happens when you just like give confidence to a kid like actually maybe more than was deserved at that moment but <laughs> then i made good on it you know <laughs> um and then i and then i continued to study painting i i i when i was 12 then i started to take classes with a person who was like a realist painter And he actually still teaches in Florida. And what's wonderful is I was down in Florida working on a project and one of the like incredible creative people who was back in town because of COVID and ended up uh, helping on the project. um, They also studied with the same painting teacher when they were a kid. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And uh, and so, yeah, he was just somebody that really taught kids how to see. And I have this like memory of going drawing like from a you know a photograph of like a driveway and I just tried to draw it straight down like towards the eye and he was like held up the pencil and was like look it's it doesn't look like what you think it looks like and yeah. that was just like a world changer for me I was like what you know oh not only does it not look like what I think it looks like but I can figure it out yeah. I can sort of learn to see which was like wild I mean you think you know <laughs> yeah you know and then I And then I was like, that was my identity as I was this classical painter. And then I was like this, you know, experimenter, but I was always very much a painter. And I remember like 
trying um, block printing in high school and being like, this is the worst thing. I hate this <laughs> oh, no. more than anything. Oh, I hated it so much because I was a painter, right? So I was yeah. like shading and I made colors. And then suddenly somebody's like, take this knife and like hack up this thing and you get two tries and two colors. And I was like, death to this thing. This is the worst thing. <laughs> but then, you know, then I, I moved to New York and I was painting and I, um, you know, it was like this thing where I was a kid pre-internet, a teenager mm-hmm. pre-internet even. Yeah. So like when I got to New York, the, there was all this stuff about what art could be that I'd never even heard of mm-hmm. and never even had been exposed to. You know, not to mention that the city is like an artwork and I was just totally blown away and felt everything shifted under my feet. And I was mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, like art isn't like a square painting on a wall only, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it can be. But what if it wants to also be other things? It was very destabilizing. I can imagine. <laughs> and then uh, and then I got, you know, really fixated on <clears throat> thinking about like, well, what are the other ways that it can show up? And like Richard Sarah. Um, had this sculpture. Well, PS1 was like an amazing space Mm -hmm. and people had all this kind of decentralized art where it would be like somebody would have like a dot that like followed through the building and you'd be like, wait, this is an art piece. And, you know, Richard Sarah had this like sculpture that was molten lead in the corner. And, you know, I just had never seen anything like that. I had never had that proposed to me that this is what an artwork could be. And so it, it just did such a big shift. And I started to just say like, well, well, what would my artwork look like if I tried to like allow it to shift a little? But I was so rooted in portraiture. I had such a classical background that I that I would sort of return to this feeling of like, but I'm I'm still me, which is this person who can look at a human face for infinity of time and Uh. who, you know, has this training. And so I kept like kind of wrestling back and forth between being like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with graffiti. And then being like, well, I'm not going to pick up a spray can and like start tagging. I want to still be who I am. I'm not trying to become someone else. I just want to learn how to interact with this thing that I love so much. And that was when this kind of back and forth started. And I landed on printmaking in there, you know, because sort of two things, the simplicity, because you could, you could read it at a distance and that Mm -hmm. seemed important Mm -hmm. in the cityscape, you know, and then the other was the repeatability that I wanted to be able to, you know, these things are going to be semi-permanent. It's nice to make more than one, but kind of more than that, I really wanted the feeling that I was creating a language with these, like each little print was going to be, you know, sort of a syllable in a sentence. And I was going to build from there, you know, doing the repetition and the, and the changing and the way that, you know, printmaking additioning is such a small aspect of printmaking. There's this kind of whole other world that's about same with variation, same with variation, same with variation. And that's where I really kind of nerd out. Yeah. And can you speak maybe a little more to what you said about creating a language? Cause that sounds really interesting. I, but I don't think I quite understood what you meant by that. Well, I think I was thinking of it kind of literally almost like uh-huh. I had this sense that there was like a, a syntax or like that, you know, when we say words, we're like, er, duh. <laughs> there's pieces, there's yeah, pieces yeah. to it. It's comp- And you use those things over and over again. What goes into water? What, you know, we're using these sounds and we're using these, these forms and it's, it's pretty simple. And then we construct this whole world out of it. 
And so I was like, I could create 26 things. I could create, mm. you know, and I think there were people like Xu Bing was like creating his own kind of fake language and characters at the time. You know, certainly there were other people that were thinking about language. And so, yeah, I just had this feeling where I was like, where I was like, I'm going to just take, you know, visual images, drawings, but I was doing little square linoleum block prints at the time. And I just was like, what will it feel like for me if I build these up and reconfigure them and make these long scrolls and kind of try to build these like landscape, you know, build a sentence or build a, you know, a paragraph or, you know, interact with different kind of shapes in the city using these like same forms repeated over and over again. And will that start to feel like a language if I, if I do that? And did you find that it did? I think what I found is that I was developing my voice. Yeah. Um, no one ever said like, is that a language? Is right. that a sentence? Like, certainly not. That was my private thought process. But I, I certainly found that I was developing my voice. And the, all, the other reason that I knew that I was developing my voice, it was like quite a magical, mystical time to be honest, because yeah. I think up until that point, I was always being like, okay, here's my, you know, Van Gogh painting. Here's my, you know, surrealist painting. Mm -hmm. I was always kind of like knew what I was referencing. And suddenly there was this feeling almost like the lights were out. And I was like, okay, just walk, like take mm -hmm. one step, take the next step. And there was this feeling of being very much in the dark and this feeling that I stripped back everything I knew. Cause you know, I'm back to linoleum block prints. So I'm with these two colors, yeah. these very harsh forms. And it was like being like, here's your bones. You have these very simple blocks. You don't know where you're going. This is all you get. Go. Wow. Um, and it felt really magical. I was like, something is happening. I could feel it, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that's what it feels like, or that's what it felt like for me at the moment when you start to develop your own voice rather than, you know, be just rooted in your, in your learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I can identify with that, that, that feeling of realizing that like you've kind of walked off the edge of the cliff, but you didn't fall yeah. straight down. You know, you get to be like, you kind of get to be wily e. Coyote where you're like, wait a minute, yeah. I'm not holding on to anything anymore. Yes. But everything hasn't yeah. come crashing down, you know? Yes. Yeah. Like when the, um, when the older kids like trick you into riding a bike. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they're just like, like, they just no. stop holding on. They don't tell you. And you're like, what's happening? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm doing this. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, with the creative process and then, you know, and then you realize that it's just you and you have to crash a few times. And then, you know, I feel like it's, yeah. a, it's a metaphor you could definitely keep going with. Yeah. Totally. Including that I knew that a lot of my work at the time was not good mm. and I continued to put it out. Because I was like, well, I don't see another way. Uh, like, I'm not making better work, but I know I will make better work. Mm -hmm. So it was like the only way through is through. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, and I think speaking of crashing, also sometimes there's periods of just being like, this is weird. But like, what do you want from me? Like, this is what's mm -hmm. happening. Like, there's no, I can't avoid this. I can't get to the next step unless I cross through this step. Yeah. Yeah. I had a guest once say, you have a lot of bad prints in you and you just need to get them out. And I always yeah. love that. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. I love that. That is so good. And, and let me tell you what, pasting things out on the street and letting them just rot off the wall <laughs> is a great way to get them out. I can imagine. <laughs> 
just get a lot of them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, they kind of can, yeah, return to the, you know, the cosmic ether from whence they came. Yeah, as they like flow back into the earth. Absolutely. So speaking of sort of the ways in which printmaking continued to interact with your practice and still does, you know, we see a lot of repeating figures, a lot of repeating imagery in your work sort of throughout the years, throughout the installations, um, Tarantula Mother, the ice cream, Moni, these figures appear again. And while I know some of them are leaf covering and um, a lot of them are actually just, you know, rehand drawn as well, I've always been curious if this, you know, having early on been exposed to printmaking and the reproductive capabilities, if you think that kind of influenced the reoccurring visual themes or would they have been there all along? Chicken and egg, what do you think? Well, you know, a lot of the, so if, when I make a carving, mm -hmm. I will, I will I will let that, you know, I'll make mini prints off the initial block, but then I'll also make silk screens, mm -hmm. sometimes even etchings that that same image, the literal same image, I will, I will rework in a few different ways. And so, and so that might be like when you sort of see something cross a medium, mm. um, then I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sometimes going, okay, I'm going to take this, this print and like, uh, redevelop it in, in etching and it's it's you know be like a photo plate etching or something like that so I think the re a lot of the recurring image is just that kind of original fascination of mine of like of 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 same with change mm. of being like I always had this kind of image of of like this is how evolution works is that you make you make a hundreds of something mm. and each one is a little different and you just feel that out. You fill out all the possibilities. You're like, wow, what happens when I break this up and make it three dimensional? What happens when I leave this really raw? You know, what about this color variation, that color variation, that color mm. variation, just getting, you know, building up the, all the possibilities. And I will often feel, you know, like when I first make a print, the, the first couple things I do with it are, are very, um, I don't know, rudimentary. Like I would almost, it would, it would feel like a loss if I had stopped there in terms of working that image that like right now I'm, I'm making this huge, um, sculptural box that's like in the shape it's like round with all these all these kind of compartments and it's it's just this like very epic wall piece and I'm making it out of a print that I first pulled six years ago mm. so it's a it's a long time that I've been working with this image and I just now got to the place where I could really explode it out in this very intense way and I feel like part of that ability to do that is just getting super, super comfortable with this image of being like the image becomes a material, like a material that I can use and work with, like in and kind of deform and shift and or, you know, figure out the the best, most precise way to, to sort of um, like honor the forms. And so, yeah, I really I love to have a kind of a whole arc of a relationship with each one of the the portraits. That's such a fascinating idea what you're touching on that idea of images material that yeah. you can you can get to know it as a player the way you would, you know, if you were suddenly taking on ceramics or something. Um yeah. and that it the same way that the media that we use will always kind of end up having its own voice in the finished outcome. 
when you spend time mm-hmm. with that images, it sounds like the portraits get to have that effect as well, which is fascinating. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you're so comfortable with them that you're like, you're like, oh, I'm going to use it in this way. I'm going to rip it in half. I'm going to, you know, all these different things that I think that you wouldn't do if you were just like, here's my painting. Here's my one precious, right. um, you know, <clears throat> version of this, right? That it's, that it's so, it's so much about exploration and variation and change. Mm, yeah, that was something that I... I think that we we chatted about before was just this idea of with printmaking, you don't need to be precious. And so you can mm-hmm. just dive deep and follow whatever rabbit hole that you have no faith in, <laughs> like just to see, just mm-hmm. to see if maybe mm-hmm. there's a jewel at the end of it. And, totally. and if, if it doesn't turn out, you, you know, you can start again, which is such an amazing yes. thing. So you just can yeah. and make you still and make. have your, your core image, you know, you just, you return to that. And, and I love, you know, for me, it also does a thing where it balances my need to be ultra precise with my need to be experimental because I can pour all the ultra precise energy into that portrait. You know, when I make, when I draw the portraits in printmaking, although I actually have put a pause on my printmaking practice. So I'm, mm. I'm talking about this kind of in the past tense, but I, you know, I would take a a day, you know, they would take a month at least to draw and carve. And then a couple of days of that would just be zoning into the face where you like turn off your phone and you just mm. get away and you're just in this. And so that kind of energy where you're like, no mistakes can happen. <laughs> this is the place that's also there, but that's what's locked in to the print. And then once you have that and it's kind of locked in, then you can start messing around. (laughs) And I love that because it doesn't, it allows me to show up as the kind of like wild perfectionist that I am while also expressing an experimental, like kind of, you know, readiness to, kind of recreate and destroy the material as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard it talked about that way, but it's so true that you can kind of imbue an image with this sort of fiddliness, you know, with the, mm-hmm. um, with the persnickety perfectionist elements of it. And, but then on the other side of it, you just get to kind of reap that benefit, um, while, you know, destroying it or wheat pasting it and, you know, knowing that someone's going to come tag it or something in a, in a minute and, mm-hmm. and it won't have that life. That's, that's a real sort of freedom, isn't it? Yeah. Because you wouldn't like, when I think about like pouring a month of love and energy into something, you, it would be very, it would be so much harder to be like, I poured a month of my life into this and now it just got tagged over. Mm-hmm. But you can, you can put the month, the, the month of your life is still there in the print uh, all the way. You know, yeah. it shows up every time. To kind of like zoom out a little bit more and, and talk about your practice, um, from a little bit more of a bird's eye view. I think that sometimes people think about, your practice is having these two sides. There's like these large, um, sometimes, you know, year long, years long, still ongoing community based projects. And then there was this other side that was sort of personal narratives, often around trauma healing. And mm-hmm. that always felt to me like it was likely a bit of a false dichotomy to say that these are the two things that she does and neither the twain shall meet. Um, because certainly, community projects are healing in their own way. And when we heal ourselves, we're also healing a piece of the community that we're a part of. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Is this, is this something that you find to be true? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, what, what you're kind of seeing is a trajectory where a, 
tendency went from being unconscious to being conscious. Mm. So like when the earthquake struck Haiti in 2010 and a group of, you know, a couple friends and I were like, okay, let's, um, you know, let's do something. Let's, let's try to help in this moment. Or like in Braddock, when there was this community that was suffering tremendously, Mm -hmm. um, in this kind of blight and economic collapse. And it was really having this, this very heavy, effect on the entire community, you know, this, this desire to, you know, try to bring life and bring change and all of these, all of these kind of tendencies, I think we're kind of functioning from the same place, which is like kind of a need to heal and a belief Mm -hmm. that creativity brings healing, you know, because I was somebody, but at the time, you know, when I first started those projects, I wasn't really kind of connecting the dots that I had grown up in a family that was heavily addicted to heroin and other drugs. They were, you know, having, uh, psychotic episodes at times, ending up in, in jail and rehab and all different, you know, disappearing. And so many, uh, things were happening that like a a little kid shouldn't have to be living through. Um, and I was the kid that Mm -hmm. kind of colored through the whole thing. You know, my dad (laughs) was like something insane would be happening in the house. You know, there'd be some chaos or fighting or something really terrifying would be happening. And I'd have a, you know, he'd say I'd have a moment of clarity and go to look for you and be like, you know, where are the kids? And he's like, I would look and you would just have your face turned toward the corner and you'd be coloring as though nothing was happening. Mm. And I was like, okay, like that was, I like just kind of made a safe bubble around my head and my imagination. Um, and so I think when I was, you know, starting the community-based work, I had the, I had an instinct from my upbringing that when things fall apart, that when there's a disaster, that when situations are untenable, that like, what do you do? Like you get creative and you, and you can, you can, you know, shift something. And so I did that work for years, but then uh, my, my parents died kind of quite close to each mm-hmm. other in pretty difficult ways. And it forced me to do a ton of like looking inward and healing. And when, when I did that, I was then started to deal with, you know, the trauma of my upbringing. And I, and I started to make those tendencies conscious and to be like, Oh, this isn't, I didn't get this belief out of nowhere. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I got this, but I got this belief that creativity is a healing force because I lived with it. And, and the other thing that happened is that I think I have a little bit of a healthier relationship to the projects that I take on. Like when I was working in Haiti, um, I was giving all of my money. So I would fundraise and then whatever, if we didn't fundraise the entire amount, I would just be like, that's fine. I don't need like health insurance or <laughs> like a decent anything, uh, like a new bike tire. Like I'll just give all my money to this project. <laughs> and, um, and like we did beautiful things. I don't, it's not that I regret exactly doing that. It's just that now that I've become more conscious about my own self and my boundaries, I'm like, Oh girl, that's codependent. Like, don't do that. Like take care of yourself. Don't build a house for someone else. If your own house is collapsing, like fix your house and then help someone. (laughs) And so, and so kind of becoming more kind of working on my own healing. And of course it's still a journey that I'm on like a hundred percent, but there are some little things that I've 
that I've gained, like the ability to take care of myself at the same time as trying to reach out and, and help build community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's, that's something that, you know, we see so often is this, this tendency to just say like, well, if I'm taking care of you, I don't need to think about me. You know, and like I, yeah. I, have to, I can ignore kind of any of the chaos and the pain and the uncertainty that mm-hmm. I'm feeling, and I can just yeah. like think about this person or this community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Listening to you tell your your story, it, it's it makes me think about how I do think that. And granted, I've really only spent in depth time in the art world, so this is something of just a <laughs> anecdotal evidence. But that you know, I do think that you know, trauma and addiction, you may find at higher rates in the art world and people who are drawn to to creative practices. And I'm wondering if you have ever thought of art as kind of like um, like somatic healing in a way, because it's such a physical undertaking, or at least a lot of it is. And I think about a therapist I had once who told me when I was having, if I felt like I was going to have a panic attack, I should throw a Mm. ball back and forth in front of my face. Because Mm -hmm. if you have to use, you know, the two sides of your body at the same time, it calms your brain down. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, maybe, you know, like carving a piece of linoleum or something can have Mm. that kind of same effect. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I know I did a little bit of, of kind of therapeutic art work with, with folks in various you know, like some folks in rehab, for example. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember one woman who just wanted to paint in these big circles. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, like this is, you're getting your body involved. You're, you're getting into your body in that way of, of it being kind of somatic or for me, the carving, you know, honestly, what it felt like was that I had this maniacal energy Mm -hmm. and I had a lot of anger. Mm -hmm. I had all these forces in me that I didn't understand. And I was like, well, either they're going to push on me or I'm going to push them out, you know? And so this, the carving and the endless hours and carving and carving, (laughs) it was like this feeling that I could take this driving force and just drive it back into the block, back into the block, back Mm. into the block. And so, yeah, I think very much that there was focus. There was like this, you know, it's meditative, but also I think that you're right, that there is something about the being in the body and the driving, the the pushing, the, you know, all of that really had a power for me. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think happens, I, I never like to use words like silver lining. Or something. Uh-huh. I don't, in terms of trauma, I don't think of it exactly that way, but, um, or maybe I do, I don't know. But what I think happens, why I think you might, you may see a lot of, um, kind of trauma and substance abuse within creative people is that what I found in myself and in my family is that trauma is a boundary violation. Mm. You don't get to say what's good, what's bad, what's safe, what's not, you know, there's all these things you don't get to say when you're, when you're living in, um, so a chaos and, Mm what that then also does the kind of like silver lining there Mm. is that you can, you can be an unboundaried individual in ways that can also be beautiful. You can experience, like I would have these ecstatic experiences of the city when I first arrived, Mm. I think because of the ways in which I was, was able to be sort of permeable to the city itself or, 
you know, I think in an, in a sort of unboundaried mind, you can be like, yeah, we're going to do this. And then we're going to do that. And everyone's looking at you like you're crazy. And you're like, it's good. (laughs) We can do this, you know, because you're making connections that other people aren't making because you're like, I don't know, (laughs) it can be whatever. Like I, I know how far things can go in a bad way. Mm. And I, so I also know where some possibilities are. And so, yeah, I think it's just one of those things where when you get people who who are adapting beneficially, a lot of times those beneficial ad- adaptations are creative adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so good. And again, yeah, you one hesitates to say things like silver lining or anything because yeah. I feel like that almost puts like a kind of, um, you know, almost sort of like a morality on the things that happened to us when like the things that happened to us are just the things that happened to us, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the, the kind of sometimes disturbing, sometimes comforting things about trauma is that sometimes there's not a reason. Sometimes it, it just happened. Yeah. And now yeah. you're standing on the other side and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. here are the cards that yeah. I got dealt. What's mm-hmm. my play? And I just want to say that I've also seen, you know, in my family, I've also seen, like people sometimes like you get fully taken apart. Like I definitely yeah. have some friends and family. I just want to sort of also honor that. that yeah. Like there are, there are people that don't necessarily, it's not that they don't live full lives, mm-hmm. but, but it's, it's, it's not a, it, it you, that it can fully break you down. That's yeah. All. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's um, always significant that's, to hear it's too. It's hard. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, but we, we are, we are who we are and we, and we adapt and, and, and also like what you were saying about, you know, here's, here's, here's what I've been given. What's my, what's next for me. That very much feels like the creative process mm. to me. Yeah. So to speak a little bit about the particular exhibition that brought us together here today, Turner Carroll in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, opening mm-hmm. in just, I think a, a week and some change. Yeah. And it's going to be, of uh, uh, your new project Cicada. What's the story of how that exhibition came to be and your introduction to that gallery? Well, that is a really cool one because Judy Chicago actually connected me with that um, oh. with that gallery. And I've I've just felt so lucky over the last couple of years to be connected with her. Um, years ago, there was an idea came up uh, for the two of us to show together because she made a bunch of figurative work. Mm. Um, and I make figurative work. And somehow, you know, this idea just came up and she emailed me about the show. And I remember like that moment of like, oh my God, to Chicago just emailed me. <laughs> and then for various reasons, that particular show didn't work out, but we stayed in touch. And I just want to say, this is a kind of a wild thing about her. Her mind, I like kind of can't keep up with her. Like mm. we would, you know, when we were kind of working on the show, we would be like, okay, let's read this book. And I would think we were going to call each other back in three weeks. And she would have read it like in two days. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like amazing. So anyway, we stayed in touch. Uh, we ended up working on a project together called Create Art for Earth, which was that when after she finished this project about mortality and extinction, she felt this like huge pull to kind of get a small or whatever, not small, to get a kind of a movement going around around ecological artwork. And so we worked together on that. And then she just said, hey, like, I want you to meet this gallery. 
and that's how we got connected. And, and this particular gallery, they're so, I don't know, just like loving and lovely. I, mm. I'm really, um, this is my first show with them, but I've been kind of connected with them for, for uh, about a year now. And it's been, it's just been such a joy and I'm really excited. I'm going to visit, um, Judy when, when I'm out there and we did a, we did a kind of a really fun thing together where they and I both helped present like a lifetime achievement award to Judy over, you know, during the, the pandemic and, and had this really special moment where Judy was like, you forgot to tell them that I call you my radical daughter, just Aww. like a nice nan called me. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> oh my you know, gosh. just really, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's such a that's such just a beautiful lineage and a beautiful story. <laughs> I yeah, I love that so much. Ugh. And, yeah. and I'm so pleased to hear that you're enjoying working with them because I Jeffrey, who's the one who first introduced us. My life is just profoundly better from knowing him. Mm. Like he's, he was um, wow. just a beautiful mentor and friend to me when mm-hmm. I was just a little wobbly legged Bambi person in the <laughs> art world um, in Seattle yeah. years ago. Uh, wow. And so it just, yeah, it feels really uh, special that we get to all come together and that you're working with That's him great. because he's, um, He'll he'll do absolutely right by all the artists he works with. It's it's so Amazing. wonderful to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely the sense that I'm getting from them right now. We're working on bringing out this huge truck that I made um, as part of a project with PBS um, this winter. Mm. And uh, if all goes well, we're actually gonna this show's gonna have uh, quite a few elements. So there's gonna be the kind of hungworks show, and then there's the film cicada, and then we may also bring the house our families built, which is this big box truck that unfolds into kind of a house-like sculpture full of portraiture mm. and storytelling. Is that the PBS truck or the, is the house? Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was really curious because we mentioned that in, in passing when we spoke before about this truck and, you know, the um, the kind of the power of storytelling. And I think, you know, it might be obvious to our dear listeners that someone who chooses to dedicate themselves to making a podcast might be someone who's pretty keen on the power of storytelling. Hmm. Um, but it's something that I've, I've always loved. And, and so can you just, I know it's, it may or may not end up in the show, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear what kind of form that actually takes, um, in this project. Well, for with this project, it's actually a storytelling um, initiative that was launched by PBS, mm-hmm. um, really out of the kind of incredible division that we've been experiencing or, or noticing, maybe yeah. to say, over the last four years. Um, and so they wanted to do something to just get people talking to each other and to get people sharing just like elemental truths about who we are in our lives. And so they started this website, this huge website that's collecting like tens of thousands of stories and it's called American Portrait. Mm. And then they wanted to engage it more deeply. And so they reached out to a few artists, one of them being me. And I was totally thrilled because, because I love storytelling because public storytelling has been really life-changing for me. Mm. Um, you know, all the, the sort of work around trauma healing and all of that, the sort of the central component of that work has been 
public storytelling and it has been about sharing my journey with people. Mm. And so when they said, you know, we're working on the storytelling project, I was like, absolutely, I would love to be a part of this. And so I made a proposal, which was to create this sculpture that can move around and show up in different places and that unfolds into a sort of an abstracted and or I don't know what you would call it, more like an exploded uh, sort of a uh, like a house home forms. And then there's we during one iteration of it, we had a series of performances where actors um, we sort of pieced together. Um, my friend who's a playwright, Jeff Stark, pieced together um, various segments from the website where people were talking about um kind of one of the main threads was food and then another one of the main threads was intergenerational healing and Mm. and um and so we kind of uh you know pieced together something which felt you know not strictly narrative but like it they kind of hung together and then created this performance that happened off the truck I love that I that connection between yeah food and intergenerational storytelling and it's something that yeah I feel like um you know a, a lot of America or excuse me, a lot of the United States really is is lacking in food culture, um, and I really feel like it 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 misses out on a lot of elements of bonding that you see in other cultures. Um, one of my my dear friends who's who's actually helped out on the podcast a few times is Mexican American, and I remember her telling me this story of like when her family made tamales. That's when they could tell all the secrets. All the women would get together in the kitchen, and <laughs> she said you could tell the secrets that you normally wouldn't maybe you know tell your mom, like you know the guy right. that you're seeing or you know something mm-hmm. like that. And she said, and then the secrets go in the tamales, and then you don't have to talk about them, but you can like right. and I just was like, oh, how different would have my relationships mm-hmm. maybe have been if I, yeah, if I'd mm-hmm. had that. So it is, they're beautifully connected. Yeah. And there's something about, you know, we see this also in art making. Um, one of my favorite collaborators is uh, Philly Mural Arts, and they have a very similar kind of philosophy about these large scale murals that they make, where they, they make them on fabric so you can spread them out on a table. And then you can get 10, 20, you know, people in a room together working, painting side by side. And depending on this, you know, sometimes if the the mural has a specific subject to it, let's say like crime and, you know, survivors and, and, you know, affected families and, you know, something where there needs to be a conflict resolution. um, They said, if you get people just painting side by side, even Mm. people who think that they hate each other at first, something about the act of doing this third thing, it kind of takes your attention away. You're involved in something else. And then these other conversations start to be able to emerge because you're focused not on each other, but on the thing you're creating together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have time and you have this kind of this intimacy that's created. And then all these really profound conversations, you know, or the telling of the secrets or whatever mm-hmm. kind of comes out of that. Yeah. And that's just it's just such important work right now because, it, you know, the the divisions that, as you said, were either have sort of coming to the surface maybe is a good way of putting them. Um, they're really scary and really powerful. And mm-hmm. and it, I think it comes from separation and um, separation of the media we consume, separation of the way we interact socially. And it doesn't really actually usually take that long when you just put two people together working towards something for that animosity to kind of start to splinter a little bit, I think, because there's, you know, there are extreme cases of people who have, you know, very genuine issues with other people, but 
average human can sit across from someone at a table and see the other person as just another human. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've only gotten more isolated, I think, unfortunately, during the pandemic, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think like a certain I really I don't know, I think a certain kind of radical compassion is the only thing that's going to like ultimately start to mend us like a uh, like it feels like things get so splintered and so argumentative Mm -hmm. that that it gets you know that I I sort of start to look at this lens of like that level of compassion where where you can say it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done and Mm. I mean that literally I'm gonna see the human being in you and that's something that I try to keep sight of it's certainly not easy at all but I think if there's like if there's one thread that I try to that I try to keep consistent in my work it's this like attempt to look at that part of people it it feels like this kind of little light in the center that if you're like just keep your eye on that and you know and that in that I guess is their basic humanity Mm. where you can say like I literally don't care what you've done in your life I am just going to stare straight into your humanity and focus on that and hope that by focusing on that 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 will that that is what amplifies between us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful and it's the one of the phrases that I use that I think I picked up in hippie high school days from the Dalai Lama but it's still <laughs> It still slaps. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> that guy? Sure, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, I am a human being who wants to be free of suffering and you are a human yes. being who wants to be free of suffering. Yes. And it's exactly. like, this is true, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I feel like this is a... A, a, be a nice sort of transition to talk about some of the portraits in your work, you know, talking about seeing mm-hmm. that kind of radical humanity. Um, mm-hmm. Because you have these, you know, you, you have installations, you've got this like folding out truck, and then you also have this series of just beautiful, intimate, pretty just classically traditional portraits of mm-hmm. your close friends. How mm-hmm. do they sort of fit into the whole project? Well, the portraits are, it, it's, kind of a, a series, let me see, there's sort of a lot is going on, I think, in those portraits, mm-hmm. everything from my close friends to also street portraits, to portraits of people that I've worked with, you know, on projects where I was working in the prison system or working in, in, in rehabilitation facilities or with, with addicted folks uh, out on the street. So there's a, there's a lot of different um, ways that people are showing up in these portraits. But I think that, you know, it's actually the show is actually called Wholeness in Mind because mm-hmm. I'm I'm sort of thinking about that not only like how we find our wholeness, but I think that thing I was just saying earlier about like the little light, how if you focus on that and that and that can grow, that 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 in, in itself is is a, a wholeness that we all possess, that we all that we all always possess an unbroken wholeness that can become very much obstructed, but which we can always reconnect back to, and so I think that the 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 sort of act of looking at people for me is always just kind of a loving act that mm. I just find people infinitely I don't know <laughs> I, just, I can look at them forever I don't even know what but um but yeah so that's I think the core of of all of this work is is the portraits and is looking at at other humans and kind of hoping that that a certain kind of loving looking is the thing that can amplify have you ever read um, John Berger's essays on, I think the book is called The Shape of a Pocket. 
Mm, no. He has these two beautiful essays that just absolutely, I, I read them every year. Um, and one is about Van Gogh and the other is about, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the painter now, but these paintings that he made in, in the asylums of Paris. Mm. Um, and the just the essays are so beautiful and they're so... They just kind of talk about what it means to give a certain kind of attention to something. Hmm. And so, yeah, I think that that's like how I think about about portraits is I guess I think that like consciousness is kind of magic, right? Mm -hmm. Where we direct our consciousness, mm -hmm. like it really is. Like we understand so little about it. It's like very magical. Yeah. Um, and where we direct our consciousness has a power. Yep. And I think like the older I get, the longer I live, the more that I believe that like, you know, I think when I was younger, I used to be like, maybe you can imbue intention into form. Mm. And now I'm like, yeah, no, I think you can. Like, yeah. I think you can. <laughs> I think that, I think that, that a sort of a dedicated looking and like a loving exploration of another human can truly be captured and show up on a piece of paper. Mm. It's that old artworks have an aura about them that, that is that kind of comes from that focused attention that, as you say, the artist imbues into it. And I, I, I read the work and, and I, you know, it just sort of felt right. And then I had this experience where I was, you know, I was doing my master's degree. I was studying prints. I was absolutely in love with everything Ulrector had touched. And I was really excited to go see this, the watercolor of the young hair that I knew the Albertina had. Um, when I was in Vienna and I was kind of had planned my whole trip around going to see it. it I just loved the piece and I'd been, tra you know, having my, my grand tour through Europe and like having these deeply emotional experiences, just shaking and crying in Giotto's cathedral, you know, just having these deeply like bodily reactions. And when I finally saw this young hair, I didn't feel anything. And I was so confused. <laughs> mm. But I, I went, when I went back, um, to Arizona where I was doing my, my graduate work and I ran into my advisor and I was telling her about my summer and, you know, saying how I went to see the young hair. And she was like, Oh, but yeah, you didn't really see it though. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, Miranda, they wouldn't have had a 400-year-old watercolor just out on display. Like, you know, oh, it, she's like, you definitely saw a reproduction. And I was like, that's it. It's real. Like, that wow. was like my, <laughs> wow. my experience. How I was, cool. Yeah. I was like, I was like, this is real. Like the aura of works of art. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, it's beautiful. And so I just, I, and I, so I love what you're saying about connecting that to to humans. And, and I know that, you know, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of Buddhist traditions of just meditating on loving kindness for someone. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. this is, you know, by that belief system, this isn't just random thoughts. Like you are doing work for that person. Like it is fully yeah. believed that like you are going to help them. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's, it's what prayer is across the mm -hmm. millennia that humans have been doing that. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's all a part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think of it also, yeah, I, maybe I said this already, but I sort of think of it as like, if you can see the inner wholeness of someone, mm. whether or not they can see it, mm. that if you can see it and show it, like what happens? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, in the time that we have left, I'd love it if to chat a little bit about the video element of this exhibition, Mm -hmm. these beautiful stop motion films that you've done um, and sort of how you came to that and what you're finding you're able to tell through that format that maybe you haven't been able to tell before. Yeah, I'm like in a very radical um, shift in my life at the moment. It's Mm. really um, something is happening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am really um, I'm, I'm actually moving toward narrative filmmaking, which is I don't know why, but it just feels very shocking to me. Yeah. Um, but, um, but a couple of years ago I was doing one of those things where you like kind of write down your, your life and your goals and your this and your whatever. And I was, I, I came up with like how much I really wanted to make animation and I, and that I wasn't doing it and I kept not doing it. And I, it was the first time that I realized I was like, Oh, I'm going to have to stop doing something else if I'm ever going to make space for this dream that I keep Mm. having and I keep putting aside. And so that's why I was saying I actually stopped making prints. So the whole series, I'm still kind of creating a few last permutations of those, but the whole kind of body of prints that went out on the streets um, is, has, has ended. And now I have shifted to making time-based work and to making film. Um, and so my first kind of, the first thing I did was spend a couple of summers just secluding myself and just teaching myself this, this medium. And I fell in love with it immediately. Mm. It's one of those things that I wanted to do it when I was 20, but I didn't, that was, you know, then 20 years later, I picked it back up and it was kind of astonishing how, how much I had needed to learn from, you know, in those 20 years and how much I had learned about building stories visually and, you know, even just building sculptures and objects and, and having confidence in your, in your creative experimental voice and all these different things. And also how to, how to continue to link things together, even when they feel disparate. Mm like all of those lessons kind of needed to accrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I also just needed to get deeper into my unconscious in a conscious way, which is the thing, you know, we talked about therapy and working mm-hmm. through trauma and making a conscious connection to your unconscious so that you can start to have this conversation unfold within the work. Um, and you can start to kind of steer it a little like lucid dreaming or something. Mm. And so that's like what cicada is. It's a little bit of a, like a lucid dream in paper and in, in stop motion animation. Um, and it's kind of centers around transformation and the, you know, the tarantula mother, like you mentioned before, um, comes up and is, is a very prominent figure and is, you know, about fear and is about confronting, um, the unconscious. And there's, you know, a, quite a few sort of metaphors about, um, you know, the descent of Persephone and cicadas going underground and the, you know, sort of trip, you know, journey into the, into the kind of barrenness of, of parts of the unconscious that, that we have cut ourselves off from. And then, and then also just like a lot of play because it's like a very playful medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, you know, been described by, you know, other writers and reviewers as, is having a kind of 
lightness about it, you know, that kind of a trip to the moon, you know, that like, mm-hmm. like a silent yes. film kind of feel. Oh, I love that era. I really love that era. Just the invention of cinema. I mean, it was magic. And like, like Georges Méliès was like a, he was a stage magician, mm-hmm. you know, the person who made a trip to the moon. So there's this, there's this beautiful lightness and fun and inventiveness and, and, um, very outward reaching you know that mm-hmm. in when you're a stage musician and, and you're trying to reach an audience and and i absolutely love that era and very much have kind of tapped into that era for this work yeah, yeah. i mean i think one of the things that people don't realize about silent films is that they're so good like they're yeah. <laughs> they're so good and they're they're so funny and they're so like mm-hmm. um like the actors are so talented uh, you know the way they they use their faces, and it's just mm-hmm. it's incredible. Um, and, yeah, and it's just such a, a beautiful and kind of exciting time. And then also, you know, there's all kinds of like uh, risque things in it because this is you know, like films being centered <laughs> censored had to be invented. You know, yes. so. <laughs> I feel like we're we're coming up on the the hour recording mark here, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, I think I just I just want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. It's been just mm-hmm. wonderful and to thank yeah. you for the, all the good work that you do. I'm I'm so pleased that that you're out in the world doing what you do. I, I know we're all better for it. Oh, amazing. <laughs> well, it's been super fun and I've really appreciated just the the different kinds of, you know, conversation that you've been able to open up. So, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's our show for this week, but if you're looking for a bit more inky conversation to be had, be sure to check out the Patreon page and hear extra studio and professional advice from Callie in this week's free episode of Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. Join me again next week when my guest will be Alexander Landerman. We'll talk about growing up rurally, the art of fixing things, and the importance of having a mentor. You won't want to miss it. This episode like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 